0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. But your guns
1: are not the answer to our political problems. You telling me the law is bunch of guys like you arguing inside the air conditioning until the power runs out. If you want freedom, you got to make them give it to you. you got to take it. I agree, but the way you do that is through the power of democracy, like the election. No way they can deny the power of the people. If they do that, there will be riots in the streets. You'd think a guy like you knows how the system actually works. I served the flag because I didn't think I had a choice. I saw what we were doing down there on the other side of the gulf, No matter what the laws and the lawyers and the judges say, the law is just the rules they make up to keep themselves in power, keep taking what they want. And it only applies to us, not them. So if they don't follow the law, why should I? They gave me skills. Now they can't come bitching if I use them to protect my people, my family, my country.
0: Christopher Brown is the author of Tropic of Kansas. His new novel is Rule of Capture. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me, Rick. Apparently, you live in the future. (laughs) (laughs) When was this book being written?
1: This book, I mean, I first had the idea of this book in the summer of 2015, (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had a jet lag dream about a uh, guy playing golf with some work colleagues and realizing they were fascists. And uh uh I had invented the character that's in this book while working on Tropic of Kansas, uh, probably in 2014 and mm. um I finished this book uh I guess
0: well, in 2018. So, well as I read this book, I- What I think of is something that Cory Doctorow once told me, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, which is his idea of predicting the present. That we look at science fiction, it's always said, well, they're predicting the future, how close will that prediction be? And that absolutely doesn't matter, because the best science fiction points has glowing arrows not to the future, but to where it was being written and maybe just a bit ahead. And I think that's what you're doing here. This book, every page, every sentence, it really um, puts you in uh, a sense of stereo dislocation because I feel like I'm reading about the present exactly the present that i'm living in right now but it's not quite and it also seems like it's going to, it is going to happen tomorrow talk about that kind of mining the present mining the future to describe the present yeah i mean it's a i'm trying to do a, a kind of
1: speculative realism you might say so to to write a a science fiction that's drawn entirely from the material of the observed world. Um, I'm sort of actively evading kind of conventional modes of futurity here because I just want to kind of grab from what's around me. But I want to uh, use the tools of speculative fiction to tell truths about the world I see around me that kind of conventional modes of realism cannot. And so and so this book, you know, on the one hand, is sort of actively evading the truth of the present. It's trying to be set in a world that's very different from our own, one that's been kind of turned upside down. Uh, but at the same time, to really kind of show things as they are, um, in a kind of deeper way, in a more radical way, you know, to sort of, on the one hand, put it in a world where there are no Republicans or Democrats, where all of our normal sort of tribalist um, uh, frameworks for viewing the world around us are uh, upended or stripped away. We're unmoored from that. But at the same time, to uh, uh, dig into the material of the past to talk about kind of what's really going on uh, around us right now and 50 years ago and 50 years from now. I,
0: I was uh, reading a quote from some uh, poet, or no, it, it was about uh, Eugenia O'Neill talking about the play um, Moonlight for the Misbegotten. And in that play, there's a line about how there's no future, there's no present, there's only the past, the past, the past. And I think that that's, in a sense, what you're doing is, is you're looking at the past but rearranging it, all those pieces, to create a, a present for your characters that is uncomfortably pre- close to ours. Uh, so uh, this book is also works incredibly well as a page-turning thriller, which it is, a page-turning legal thriller, where every single line <laughs> is kind of like, terrorizingly pointing us at something. Just talk about creating the plot of this book and introduce us to Donnie Kimho. And as I was driving around in my two thousand one uh <laughs> car, which I hope to keep until they make it illegal to drive such cars around, I was thinking, I felt a lot like Donnie Kimho. <laughs>
1: yeah, well so Donnie Kimo is uh He's a burnt out criminal defense lawyer, uh, a a reasonably smart guy, who, but who doesn't really have the world's best work ethic or sort of attention to uh, uh, taking care of his personal life and is a con- and and has some sort of uh, frayed po- political ideas in the context of his world, and so he finds himself washing out from sort of establishment lawyer jobs, both in big law firms and in... Government and finds himself working as a criminal defense lawyer, taking court appointments in a U.S. drifting into totalitarianism. Uh, he's a character I came up with while I was working on *Tropic of Kansas*. I was, uh, I had a, I was in the middle of *Tropic of Kansas*, uh, working my way through a, 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 a segment in which one of the char- two characters were on the road, sort of a pair of buddies, and one of them had gotten locked up. In the in the huskow. and I'd already like exhausted the reader's tolerance of how many how many escapes are plausible in one novel, and uh, uh, and I went to grab a cup of coffee, sort of like I'm stuck. I'm going to take a break. I go to get a cup of coffee, and I'm and I'm like at this coffee shop by the side of the highway, and I look up at this billboard, and this is in Texas, where you know like lawyer ads uh, flourished like prickly pear by the side of the road, and. There's this ad for this very Austin sort of billboard lawyer is a guy whose tagline is the lawyer who rocks. Because you know, to get the kind of clients who want to have a lawyer who's also in a band, right? right. And he's got like he's got like a tie on and like a biker jacket. And I was like, you know, in dystopia, who were who are the lawyers, right? And I and and then I was, so I was like, all right, I'm gonna so I invented this idea of like the the criminal defend the kind of sleazy criminal defense lawyer, uh, fast talking, lying, sneaky lawyer in dystopia. And uh, and then as I was thinking about what I was gonna work on next, I was talking to my editor and I said, well, I have this one idea. It's kind of like Better Call Saul meets 1984. Ha ha. And he's just like, you know, and he was like, yeah, I like that so much. We should do two of those. So that's that's the genesis of that. Um, and so I'd never, I had never written, uh, I'd never, I'd never written a, a lawyer story, even though I am a practicing lawyer. I'd written a few, I guess, short stories that had lawyers in them, but, uh, and I had never been especially drawn to that particular genre of like legal thrillers. I had uh, read a few of the kind of the seminal ones. I mean, I remember, I think The Firm came out right around the time I got out of law school. The, mm-hmm. the, you know, the John Grisham's breakout book and uh, the kind of the first one of the 90s. And that was like on the heels of Scott Rose, presumed innocent when it shaved it. But The Firm, I remember reading The Firm. I'm like, this is a brilliant work of satire. Because it's like <laughs> this this young guy graduates from law school and goes to work at the big law firm. And he's really happy. And he's like ascending up the social ladder of American society and then he realizes that the, the, the law firm is a criminal enterprise, uh, which is sort of true uh-huh. in, a, in a way, and um, which is kind of a roundabout way of answering your other question about how do you, you know, about this, like, the way this uh, story sort of pulls in the past. Um, most of these legal thrillers, when you go read them, as I did to then kind of research this book, it's like, all right, I got to go kind of read some of these stories and get a handle on them. Uh, they're not really, from a lawyer's perspective, about the law. They're just about the facts of the case. They're kind of dressed up uh, whodunas with this legal procedural or courtroom drama overlay. Uh, But by uh, blending the book with science fiction, this self-proclaimed literature of ideas – I'm able to, I think, kind of write something that both works as a legal thriller and works as a novel of ideas, and the ideas are mostly about the law. And on the one hand, it's sort of made-up law. It's like a made-up, scary legal system, but it's really not, because I like researched every element uh, at the law library, and... Um, And so there's lots of you know kind of surface law, like martial law and states of emergency and courts in which due process has been suspended. But there's also like the deeper law, just like you know our you know our our property law, our real property law, and just the the idea that when you dig deep enough, deeply enough into it, you find that pretty much all all rights and property are ultimately rooted in some
0: form of theft. (laughs) You know, I've read plenty of uh, novel, science fiction novels that have legal aspects, but usually it's it's like who done it in space, and what you do is you completely, as you say, eschew the any invented technology where you do the invention and your where you're working the science fiction angle this, this is brilliant and very unique is in making up the laws itself and the and the way that the law is used and while on one hand it's clear you're doing your all sorts of great creative invention um, it it also um, is it it's based in, in, you know, perception of of reality, and and that's kind of scary stuff. I think, in a a sense, a book like this, I think, lays great claim to the horror genre. I mean, more so, I mean, it's more terrifying. I'd sure as heck rather be pursued by a mad chainsaw killer or something like that than by, you know, a a government-enabled secret court. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a great
1: observation, Rick. I, in fact, I've learned a lot in the past, I don't know, decade or so from uh, colleagues who are horror writers, and uh, I've had been had the privilege to go several times to the Sycamore Hill Writers Workshop, which mm-hmm. is a, a a workshop that, that uh, the writers John Kessel and Richard Butner organize in Asheville, North Carolina, every summer, and. Uh, learning from writers like uh, Nathan Ballingrude and Dale Bailey and folks like that uh, the power of a kind of non-redemptive lens on the world around you, right, and of non-redemptive endings and of just like (laughs) kind of like seeing things as they are. And and I think I kind of come to that. I mean, if I look at the world around me in the post-9-11 environment, that we're now whatever 18 19 years into um that that horror lens really has a lot to tell you and uh, just the other day on that it was the anniversary of 9-11 recently and um and I was looking back at some things I had written you know about um the emergence of uh depictions of torture by the good guys in, you know, popular culture, like in the TV series 24, which was all about, you know, sort of secret courts and extrajudicial remedies for people doing supposedly bad things. And I think uh, I'm, I'm still digging into some of the same material in a
0: way. You know, um, one of the things, too, that I started to realize is, as I read this book mm, I think this book is an excellent demonstration of he who writes the rules rules the world. And and that's, I I think, where we see um, power being used in a really interesting way in this novel. So uh, talk about how how power works in this novel and and how it works on the characters and changes their lives and perceptions. Well, yeah, I mean... In this book, law
1: is an expression of power, and law is dressed up in this imprimatur of reason and uh, a kind of a founding and you know some mythical social contract but uh, but it's informed by you know my own understandings of legal history that whenever you dig back into you know the foundation of any legal system, you usually find you know some warlord or conqueror coming in and imposing their own set of rules to serve their own interests uh and that's really what this at, at the ideal level that's kind of what's going on in this book is that you see uh through the eyes of a pretty wide array of characters including the lawyer including uh, his principal client who's uh, a young woman who's trying to um Uh, Help people see the world the way she sees it, basically, and happens to witness a political assassination in the course of it, uh, which causes the government to wish to silence her by hauling her in front of the secret court. Um, uh, You see how the the law and the power behind the law operates in a way that, uh, uh, yeah, is... Full of gross inequities and uh, can be a kind of crushing machine. It's as I was working on *Tropic of Kansas*, I had the experience of serving on a grand jury in the county where I live, and that that experience really kind of informs this book in a way. One of the, what you learn when you sit there on a three days a week basis, hearing every felony indictment the county attorney or district attorney wishes to make based on arrests that the police have made over the past week or month or whatever. You see how, uh, how often it is that uh, uh, defendants in the criminal justice system are guilty, but the things of which they're guilty are things that in the grand scheme of things are not really all that criminal. And that the way in which those laws are enforced on an everyday basis in this country is often extremely inequitable. Uh, and, uh, and so you have a lot of people out there who are guilty of violating basically unjust laws and have their lives permanently marred uh, uh, as a consequence. And. Um, just this morning, I was reading a story about the kind of the erosion of the moral culture and the border patrol, about all these border patrol agents sort of talking off the, off the record uh, to newspaper reporters about how, you know, if you spend a lot of time caging people for nonviolent acts, it starts to, you know, starts to get uh, eat away at your soul pretty quickly. Uh, and so that's, this book is kind of trying to use the legal thriller to sort of dig into all of that material. Uh, about the border, about the idea of who gets to live here, about the idea of how just really is the criminal justice system, uh, and use that science fictional element to help you kind of see all those things from a
0: fresh point of view. Uh, that fresh point of view is is extremely important because one of the things I remember uh, couple months ago they had a little blurb about how they were considering denaturalizing some people who might have been born on the wrong side of the Texas border in the 1950s and my first thought was that is the tip of that denaturalization iceberg and it's gonna come back as a vengeance and here it is I thought the the Mingling of the present and the future and the past in this book is, is super brilliant because you, it, it's like eat, uh, eating a meal with all sorts of flavors that like weave through it and, and make one another stronger in very strange ways. So, uh, talk about denaturalization, your experience with it, uh, if you've had any, especially legal experience, and how it works in, in this book.
1: Yeah, so the, the, in this book, there's a, a kind of a domestic emergency court that's been set up to deal with uh, uh, a rising, uh, you know, perception of, like, domestic terror on the part of basically people who are kind of like green Occupy types who want to, you know, kind of fight for real change in a, in a sort of climate change ravaged U.S. Um, and... Essentially, one of the remedies uh, or punishments that this court administers for uh, perceived betrayals of fidelity to the country is denaturalization, the the fancy lawyer's way of taking your citizenship away. And in the current environment in this country, we do hear a lot of talk about denaturalization. All of which started kind of after I had started writing this as my editor. She kind of gives me a hard time about yeah, you know, just, just please stop or write a utopia because every time i send him something then he like you know opens the paper in three weeks and there it is um the uh so there the, the denaturalization currently is administered mainly in the context you describe, where like you're really a foreigner we found out that you weren't really born in the u.s and there there, there apparently have been you know issues and These border towns, you know, like where I live in Texas on the border where you have these cities that have a a national border running between them, but they're really kind of one metropolitan area and people move back and forth and people would get birth certificates, uh, fraudulent birth certificates to say they were born, you know, a quarter mile away on the other side of the river in some instances. Um, But there are precedents where even your so-called birthright citizenship of those of us who are born on U.S. soil... Uh, can have that taken away. and uh, you know if you if you declare you are a citizen of another country, for example, or you declare the revocation of your own citizenship, you can under current law kind of be deemed to have given up your citizenship as a us uh, 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 citizen. and so, Just kind of playing with that, the idea that it's entirely plausible that, you know, people who, you know, kind of America love it or leave it take into a logical extreme and through legal means the idea that people could have their citizenship
0: stripped away for being uh, treasonous. You know, uh, this novel takes place in the shadow of a contested election. Uh, we, We have... We seem to be having a lot of those of late. Uh, so talk about that kind of – using that kind of wedge um, to drive the plot and also just to, again, tweak the reader's perceptions and sympathies too because, I, you know, you might have two di- very different readers of this book. I give this book to my sister. <laughs> All bets are off as to well whether she's ever going to call me back again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean – well,
1: the, you know, the, like, the the politics of this book are, are a little oblique in mm-hmm. a way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the the case, uh, I talked about, Donnie has this client, Shalina Rocafuerte, and she's witnessed this political assassination, and it turns out that her case interrelates with uh, this election contest, and... Um, to me, the it's another way of digging into um, the sort of illusory nature of a lot of the legal systems that we experience. I mean, I remember waking up one morning and uh, there had been a presidential election and nobody knew who the winner was. That happened in my lifetime. And it took like three months before we knew who the winner was. <laughs> And the idea that it was just kind of like basically a statistical tie that, you know, our hallowed democracy is kind of fundamentally flawed or that, you know, we've had other elections in our lifetime where, you know, the winner of the popular vote obviously hasn't won the election. And and so playing with that idea of kind of digging into that, the idea that you could have an election where nobody knows who wins and uh, that... Um, uh, the certainties we sort of take for granted with respect to how um, uh, the political regime is constructed can be kind of torn down pretty easily.
0: You know, uh, the prose in this book is really interesting because you're writing in, in English, there's no, like, ma- made-up words or anything like that. It's, but the, the, as we read it, all every term, every almost every sentence you look at it, it's through a slightly diffracted uh, magnifying glass. You know, you're we're looking at something we think it that in our lives we think it's straight ahead, in your book, it's diffracted sideways. And so, when you come back to your real life, <laughs> you, you start of think, wait, I always thought that was right there and perfectly clear, but maybe that's not the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, the 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 language part of the book, the voice of the book, it's mm-hmm. um, is it informed by
0: a kind of prose you have to write as a lawyer?
1: Yeah, I mean, sure, the prose of lawyers is there. There's a precision to what lawyers do, a kind of extreme pickiness about how lawyers approach language that probably shows up in the book. But uh, the lawyer in this book is kind of a sloppy lawyer, <laughs> right? He's kind of a, uh, uh, he's kind of a. Uh, lawyer who likes to party a little bit but um there's a you know you're trying to I mean to me writing starts with just the the jazz of language with this like with sound with like how language sounds in your head as you're reading it almost or with the kind of like the rhythm of it and um, and this is this is kind of a gonzo lawyer so there's a kind of a balance between that. That logical rigor of legal prose and a kind of gonzo energy and, uh, uh, and a certain point of view. It's like when I was digging into all these old lawyer stories to research for, like, okay, how do these things work? I read this, uh, there's this great Perry Mason novel by Earl Stanley Gardner uh, where I remember this line just jumped out of me. And it's just early in the, early in the book. The case of the glamorous ghost Perry is meeting with a new client, and he said he explains to the client, "Lawyers become somewhat cynical," <laughs> and so that that sort of understated truth infuses the the voice of this book, and and trying to yeah trying to figure out how to uh, uh, convey this sort of attitude that I'm talking about, where on the one hand you're working within that system, uh, but you have this sort of uh, gallows humor way of conveying the the soul-eating flaws of that system and maybe in exaggerating it in the context of this book a little bit from what's real life but that's really kind of the truth and I, I, I guarantee you that you know you can go down to the lawyers who work death penalty cases or the lawyers who work these immigration cases and asylum cases at the border or whatnot any of these horror shows that are going on in real life and you can be sure that there's a special vocabulary for kind of joking about it and uh, uh, kind of digging, a a coded way of digging into the meat of it that that to an outsider could be kind of horrifying but uh, uh, has its own uh, weird linguistic beauty at the same time.
0: You know, you mentioned death penalty cases. There, there's an execution in this book, and it's really powerfully written. And I had to ask, have you seen one? I have
1: never seen an execution. I had to do a little reading on it, but it's funny. I go. I did most of my research, uh, uh, my legal research for the book, at the University of Texas Law Library. And like a lot of law libraries, I mean, law libraries always have like the successful lawyers who went to the school donating lots of money to, you know, uh, even though often they're the ones who didn't get the best grades, but they like to give a lot of money to the school. So there's this weird art collection in the law library. And one is like you come up to like the, get off the stairs on like the third floor and there are these death masks of two of England's finest executioners. And they're like plaster plaster heads and hands next to these copies in a glass case of their memoirs of being executioners and uh, you know and there's this weird rich body of literature describing executions. I don't know if you've ever read you know, Foucault's Discipline and Punish opens with this long description of the execution of a regicide in like you know 14th century France or something and uh, and, uh, and in Texas, of course, we have a lot of executions, and so uh, there's, a, there's a deep literature of that around. Um, uh, I did spend a lot of time just kind of going to the federal courthouse and watching the normal operation on a day-to-day basis of the criminal ju- the federal criminal justice machine, and the courtroom scenes in this book draw heavily from that. And there's really nothing—I mean— I saw all kinds of stuff that didn't even make it into the book that just, like, I, I remember going, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I can kind of, I'm going to do research, so I, like, put my suit on, and I go down to the courthouse, and, you know, we're just like, oh, it must be some other lawyer I haven't seen around here before. They don't pay you any mind, right? Mm-hmm. You can kind of pass, as it were, uh, and uh, they do often make you leave your phone at the, uh, at the the with the security guys when you go in, so you're not taking pictures or recording anything, because, they don't want any cameras in the courtrooms. Heaven forbid that anyone would show what's going on in there. But I remember going to this like uh, kind of series of arraignments one morning uh, for you know just kind of like criminal drug federal drug cases and so on. And you go into the courtroom and before the judge gets there and before even the defendant or the defense counsel are there and the like prosecutors are in the in the in the like uh, federal agents are just there shooting the shit with the clerks and they're talking about the defendants in a really kind of dark and negative way talking about the nationality of the defendants and uh their you know uh, legal status as immigrants and so on and just kind of like small talk over coffee there in the courtroom but like in a really like true dystopian way (laughs) and then and then all of a sudden the things will start getting going and there's nobody in the gallery nobody's in there watching these cases and then uh a door, the judge comes in and then the door opens in the side of the room and in comes a human being wrapped in chains, like literally like, you know, circled with shackles. And um, uh, I don't know, it's just like, you know, this sort of very ordinary, totally extraordinary thing that's happening like every business day. <laughs> and and it, 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 it was pretty illuminating.
0: So a lot of the color of that is, is infused in this book. When you were talking about that, it made me think about this book. Because as I read this book, I didn't really take it as a dystopia, although it certainly qualifies in many ways, because it, it's just too close to reality. I mean, it, if this is a dystopia, we're living in a dystopia. We're living in, in, this, in this dystopia, you know, five years ago, <laughs> five years before the book or so. And, and I, I think that makes you really question... Uh, that the dystopian genre uh, as being you know uh an imaginary extrapolated genre as opposed to uh this is like uh, you know greedy urban realism yeah uh, i mean uh, that's yeah i mean that's my intent it's i mean it it there's a
1: lot of science fiction in here i mean mm-hmm. it's it's but it's it's pretty deeply embedded i mean this is a This is set in a Houston, Texas, in which uh, Houston's favorite surrealist short story writer, Donald Bartlemy, in this universe, he was the mayor of Houston. (laughs) Um, You know, which is... But that kind of alternate history stuff is pretty deeply embedded in a way that... uh, Like Easter eggs in a video game. For those who like to read texts that have those kinds of things going on, they're there. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But... If you're not looking for those sorts of things, you should be able to just blow right past them as you're reading. They're just sort of deep background because the core of it is all. Yeah, absolutely. It's it is a kind of urban realism, uh, maybe put up to a little bit of a funhouse mirror of you know, uh, or a, through a little bit of a speculative prism.
0: I I have to ask: Are parade clubs a real thing?
1: Parade clubs were a real thing in uh, Houston,
0: uh, like at least before World War I. Explain what it is in, in, in reality and in, in your book. Well,
1: <laughs> I mean, when I, was, uh, when I moved to Texas 20 years ago, I was working in one of the big uh, Houston law firms in their Austin office. And they had a little history of the law firm video that would play on the on the on the TV screen in the lobby, in this sort of parade of the founding partners. Um, uh, I mean, the f- the firm was it was called Baker Bots, and the Baker was like the grandfather of Secretary of State James Baker, right? And. Uh, and they had that guy, Captain Baker, who famously was the guy who did "The Butler Did It." Came from that that fr- the Butler Did It came from a phrase that Captain Baker had, uh, where he solved the crime involving a murder that led to the saving of the endowment of Rice University. Go figure. I, that's as much of the story as I can accurately remember. But the video included an image of Captain Baker in his. Fancy 19th century mustache and a military uniform and I had thought that was some confederate uniform and I was like why are we showing you know videos of people in confederate uniforms and one of my history buff uh, partners said no 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 that's not a confederate uniform that's from a parade club from a Houston parade club and so these were these like military fraternities for like young professional men in like 19th century Houston where they would go, like marching, and you know, but kind of like quasi militia. And there's, I mean, you Jesus, can you, <laughs> you can derive your own like uh, 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 undertones or overtones of what that likely was really about. But they were all kind of these were kind of like the preppy establishment kids of Houston's a kind of like Houston is like. Greenwich, Connecticut, or Chevy Chase, Maryland, like mixed with Texas. It's like this sort of it's there's this very, you know it's the place that gave us Wes Anderson and you know that movie Rushmore. That's like those are very. There's Houston is a funny place, and so the parade clubs in my book are imagining that idea kind of mixed with like contemporary militias and uh, and sort of running with it. So yeah, there's there's an alternate history element
0: there, I suppose. Well, I I mean I I was. It reminded me of a book I read about uh, by Eric Larson about the last ambassador to Nazi Germany, who was somewhat, or, or Germany when it was becoming Nazified. Yeah. And, and it just, that was, those are really the, like the parade, the brown shirt parades. Yeah. That's exactly what they were doing. Well, yeah. And so, and, and yeah. <laughs> this book, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to do kind of. I'm waiting for this to happen. Oh, I'm surprised it isn't happening now. To be well, honest. we need our we
1: need our Weimar trigger, right? <laughs> this is like this is set. That, I mean, the kind of the setting of this book is kind of an American Weimar. It's like uh, the U.S. has lost a war with China and been kind of humiliated on the world stage. And you know, in reading this book, you were talking about it being kind of a realist, you know, dis- quote unquote dystopia. Uh, I was like, well, where are, are there any stories of like lawyers in dystopia or like detectives in dystopia? And what I thought of was like, oh, it's like those Philip Kerr, uh, Bernie Gunther novels—the mm-hmm. like stories of a detective in Nazi Germany or in Weimar Germany. And uh, and so there's a lot of that kind of mood uh, infused in this book. And uh, and I have a lot of family that lived in Germany. Uh, before and during World War II and, and have some, kind of some sense of that from uh, family lore and wanted to infuse uh, this book with a
0: lot of that. I, I think that uh, it, it's so interesting just to, to uh, immerse ourselves in, in this world that has so much in common with our world but is also at the same time absolutely different. And I have to ask about just uh, the, the me- Nuts and bolts of putting together, you know, the the page-turning plot that drives this book, because you have a, a plot that, in a sense, could come out of you know a, a number of you know current-day thrillers, but you've written it uh, through through the lens of it's like if Matt Taibbi and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and Hunter Thompson collaborated <laughs> <laughs> on a science fiction novel it it, it has a very interesting uh kind of sarcastic perspective it's a good way
1: to put it yeah i mean um yeah lawyers become somewhat cynical <laughs> i i mean it's funny yeah i mean it is <laughs> plot does not come naturally to me i mean these this book and all my stuff starts with character mm-hmm I kind of start with I have like an idea of I have the characters and I have an idea of uh, the kind of book it wants to be uh, but I have to kind of write my way into it and it's really hard and and inefficient way to go about it but um,
0: uh, for me at least it kind of produces the results I want Um, I would say that 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 approach is produces a more organic feeling book to, to my mind that when you have to surprise yourself and work your way through the plot, you're guaranteed to surprise and shock the reader pretty much all the way through.
1: Well, maybe you're right about that. I mean, it's a good point of view. And I think, I mean, for me, it's the only way to write one that I believe, right? Mm-hmm. I can't, I just don't have it. I mean, I can, I'll have, I usually have an ending in mind, right? I try to write an ending so I at least, like, know where I'm going. But, um, but yeah, the plot of this book comes from character. And, uh from the protagonist, the
0: and all of the other characters, and from the character of the world, you know, uh, the the you have some really great places that this that this book takes place, in. and it always it feels like like reading this book is like kind of being trapped in like the rundown urban <laughs> part of town. Uh, so, and, and one of the things I liked was. Uh, The Submariner, uh, which which is so interesting because you use a place that combined the superhero fetish theme with a sense of climate change languor. (laughs) Well,
1: that's very Houston. That's in, uh, uh, I mean, the neighborhood that's
0: not a a real place. uh,
1: No, the Submariner is not a real place, uh, but you can see it from here. It's in, it's very true to the neighborhood, uh, the real world neighborhood in which that's set, which is the Montrose neighborhood of Houston, which mm-hmm. is kind of an old residential neighborhood, uh, like just west of downtown, and this is where my in-laws used to live uh, when I first met them. Uh, they, they they themselves being refugees from the Argentine Dirty War, and uh, Montrose is a place full of sort of far out bars, and, uh, uh, and like groovy bookstores and uh, uh it's kind of a bohemian part of houston so yeah the uh i don't know and, and i think most of houston is suffused with a feeling of climate change languor and uh uh i mean i i when i uh was on my tour for tropic of kansas i did a we did a reading in, in houston the night hurricane harvey blew in and you know and just you know getting out hours before the freeways were submerged like the cover of some 1960s J.G. Ballard novel. I mean, (laughs) uh, a place like that needs a bar that's about, you know, getting drunk while being underwater.
0: Uh, You know, uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, this is a really interesting theme in this book, uh, climate change. And I think you do a the best job I've seen almost ever in making that a powerful part that where, you know, a powerful statement about climate change without a lot of the normal foo for that goes with that. It's just like this is the way things are now, and they don't have to think about it too much.
1: Yeah, I mean— it is the way things are now. And yeah. I, I spent a lot of time you know, I, I spent a lot of time in my personal life uh exploring urban nature mm. and and always have. And uh uh and this book is kind of informed by by that immensely. Even though it's a story about a lawyer in a suit going to court and it's a very urban story, um you know, Houston, like any city, uh, is a city that's like very close to nature, even as it's got this really profoundly damaged way of interacting with nature.
0: You know that, I, but that that's really interesting to me because I my take on the difference between uh, civilization and non civilization is that what we're sitting in right now is. Absolutely 100% natural landscape in the same way that termite mounds are a natural part of the natural landscape. These are just, we're just living in larger uh, termite mounds. I totally
1: agree. I mean, uh, the, the, we, we construct these mostly false. Uh, binaries between human space and natural space and the idea that there's our kind of habitat and there's nature. And uh, I'm very interested in breaking that down and attacking it and obliterating it or at least making us a little more conscious of how false it is. I mean, uh, my wife and I built our own house in a... Uh, in in a trench uh, from which an old petroleum pipeline was removed. We built a little buried <laughs> eco-bunker. And one of the fundamental things when we did this, we <laughs> bought this, like, brownfield lot that's, like, on the Colorado River in Austin. On one side is, like, the floodplain of the river. On the other side are a bunch of factories, right? In this, like, kind of industrial uh, wow. uh, zone. And, uh... And I was like, well, yeah, we need to preserve that memory of the pipeline that ran through here because um, the, uh, that's sort of part of the natural history of the site, right? Mm-hmm. And even as we're trying to sort of repair it, we also need to acknowledge it. And um, uh, when I bought the lot, there was this uh, valve box on the pipeline. So right in the middle of the lot, there was this big metal... Uh, steel aperture with a wheeled hatch that you could open up to get into the earth like something out of that tv show lost and um there was a weird beauty to that thing and, and, and around the valve box uh, had been constructed uh by harvester ants a uh a huge underground lair uh <laughs> On the infrastructure of the pipeline, and harvester ants are road builders, mm-hmm. right? They're, like, they're big ants. They bite if you get bit well, they it hurts like heck. Uh, they build little, like, highways where they go out in these little paths that you can clearly see in the landscape, and they bring back seeds. Um And uh, when uh, the giant oil company that I contracted with to remove their pipeline from our property came out to do it, they treated the ants as a biohazard as they removed their steel valve into the earth. Uh, And they tried to kill them, but somehow they survived. And so this ant mound ended up being kind of integrated into the house. We, like, built our house around the ant mound almost. (laughs) It's, like, right at the stop top of the stairs where you kind of enter our home. And tucked under it is the little room where I put my uh, internet router, okay? And so after I had done that, I read this article uh, in uh, you know, in, the, in the news about scientists discover that harvester ants regulate the coming and going of foraging ants bringing back seeds uh, using a method that is algorithmically identical t- to TCPIP. <laughs> Wow. The the, <laughs> so, the, the the means used to regulate packets coming and going on the internet. Wow! <laughs> and so I was just like, yeah, these there's there there these things are all patterned in nature, and the idea that that you know even cyberspace you know functions in the same way as a mound of ants is <laughs> sort of proves your point.
0: Yeah. Well, that you know, and there's some really great uh, parts in this book that. You know, are passages where your characters can just get up and and rant. And I'm just (laughs) tapping upon one now where somebody says, "Uh, The world is changing, physically changing. Maybe you can't read our legending of it, but that map shows what our models say about what's coming. Not just sea level rise, but other changes in weather patterns, agricultural productivity, animal populations, and the mass migrations of humans. Our machines tell us it could be decades before things start to recover in the Midwest, and they're going to get worse before that.
1: (laughs) And that, of course, from an investment banker who is buying and selling pieces of countries. Yeah, this is before I didn't I didn't know Greenland was an option,
0: but <laughs> well, now uh, you are once again <laughs> ahead of your time, unfortunately for us. Um, I think that the 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 way that you managed to, to, to work that in, I think, is really nice because uh, it. It gives your readers kind of a bit of kind of what I would call emotional anti catharsis, and I think in many book ways, this book I never hadn't thought about that, but that's actually about right. This, this is an anti cathartic novel.
1: Well, <laughs> I I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I kind of like that. I mean, it's I'm trying to write my way into a utopian novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in fact that's what I'm working on now. But um, but looking at this. Anthropocene condition to use a term that already feels a little overused but um, you know trying to uh, look accurately at the state of the of the sort of human created world from a kind of deep historical perspective and, and appreciating the extent to which if you really want to kind of fix these sorts of climate problems you have to like hack the agricultural revolution (laughs) out of the system that's right easier said than done easier said than done that's like i mean i've been reading this amazing book uh against the grain by james scott which is a deep history of the anthropocene and he he looks at these like early these kind of first permanent human settlements in the fertile crescent of you know what's now iraq and how these people would settle in these biodiverse wetlands, people who had otherwise previously been mostly on the move, and then they'd find these really biodiverse wetlands where they could just sample all these different kinds of bounties of nature uh, uh, for sustenance. And that just like as soon as groups of human beings kind of stay put like that, these proto-state legal systems start to organically generate and drive the society towards, you know, grain monocultures and all of these things that involve, like, shaping nature to kind of feed this emerging system. So um, heady and complex sorts of ideas to try to deal with in a novel, and they're really only sort of peripherally so in a way, but just trying to help, I don't know, have the characters start to kind of see some of those things as they're walking through the world and uh, thinking about the possibility, or, or even just perceiving how close the nature is, like uh, uh, in the environment of Houston, where you know it's a, a city built on a swamp, full of creeks and rivers, and um, you know those refineries are built on these incredibly beautiful, like, natural places. And now you can even go, I mean, I explored them while researching the book, and I spent a lot of time with them before. You can go, like, paddle your canoe down through the ship channel and look around at the herons
0: flying past the flare-offs. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I was just uh, thinking that the terrain of, of this book uh, is so interesting because well, I mean, what, what we realize is that Texas is a state that's, you know, like California, is as big as as many countries. And, and you have a wonderful—I I, I don't want to give away the, any of what's going on, but there are some really amazing—some things that are happening in the book that what's really interesting is that the, they seem so overreaching to the characters. The characters sometimes kind of are— can they really do that? But to us, we're going, oh, yeah, they do that right <laughs> now. <laughs> so talk about that kind of. In- I bet you it's believable that the characters would think it's that kind of weird. But once we enter the world of this book, it really shifts your per- perceptions. It's like, you know, the, the, the Chris Brown lens has come on. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, the kind of the Overton window of the politically possible. I mean, Everything in this book, Rick, is drawn from historical precedents. I mean, there's nothing in in, in many of them recent historical precedents. I mean, um, uh, the sorts of post-9-11 approaches to uh, uh, dealing with enemies of the state, uh, I think, could be much more easily domesticated uh, uh, than... uh, maybe we assume. And, uh, and if you look at the contemporary things that happen in the sort of, uh, due process free zone of the border, um, I don't think it it takes a lot of extrapolation to imagine, um, uh, citizens, you know, people who are supposedly have certain kinds of constitutional protections that non-citizens or that enemy combatants or that, you know illegal border crossers undocumented border crossers do not that um, you just need the right kind of emergency you know the the ability to suspend habeas corpus Mm -hmm. which is the kind of fundamental right not to be unjustly detained and, and locked in a cell by the authorities the power to suspend that is right there in the constitution and it's happened before right and one of the instances in which the constitution permits it is you know times of you know insurrection or rebellion and uh you know and what constitutes an insurrection or rebellion is (laughs) sort of yeah is up to the law to define yeah and the law serves power and you know it's just not that hard to imagine scenarios where things get you know a little little more rugged and um uh and there are plenty of Plenty of precedents of, uh, you know, declarations of martial law. I mean, it was, I went and I was like, I don't know, go to the law library today and research martial law and see if there's anything out there. And like, lo and behold, there's like a whole section kind of in another back corner of the law library past the death masks of the, of the 19th century English executioners under the gaze of some painting of a bewigged old judge. And there's like, I mean, it's not a huge section, But there's like 20 or 30 tomes on, well, I remember the title of one was The Practical Administration of Martial Law. And these are guidebooks (laughs) written by lawyers for how you administer military government, whether on a conquered foreign population or on a domestic population. And like in the U.S., you know, before World War II, it was pretty common for governors to use martial law to deal with, like to put down labor actions and things like
0: that, so... Uh, Chris, one of the things that's fascinating in this book is the way that lawyers tell stories about the law and about themselves. Talk about, did you research that? Yeah, well, I had
1: never read, you know, that many lawyer stories uh, kind of coming up. And uh, when I decided to write my own lawyer story and like, I wanted to really dig into the material. So I read very far and wide in the area. And uh, from the kind of, you know, kind of contemporary classic, you know, of, you know, Grisham and Thoreau and folks like that, back to the mid-20th century uh, exemplars like Earl Stanley Gardner, and kind of all the way back to some of the earliest 19th century stories. And it was really interesting because as a writer, you dig into this and it's like, oh, these stories break all the rules of, of fiction. Uh, you know, one of the most like basic rules of writing fiction and is show, don't tell, right? That you want to tell the story of the lives of the characters by showing them doing things, by kind of of constructing it from the details of their lives, not from the as-you-know-Bob kinds of expository stuff. Uh, But in lawyer stories, especially courtroom dramas, which are like the paradigmatic lawyer stories, the stories are told all by people talking about things that happened off stage of the kind of the, the stage of the, of the courtroom, you know, like witnesses describing the crime that happened a year before, you know, a series of unreliable narrators that are presented to tell the story through this very weird, ritualistic, formalized, uh, 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 setting, uh, of the court. And, uh, It's a really weird way to tell a story when you think about it, right? It's one that we're all very familiar with, and we're sort of accustomed to its rules and to the way in which, you know, role defines character, whether it's, you know, the judge or the prosecutor or the victim or the defense lawyer uh, or the, you know, witness. And... um, And another thing that's really fundamental to modern novels is like interiority of the protagonist, right? You want to know getting inside the protagonist's head and how they're feeling and and, uh, you know, kind of painting the picture of their own particular alienation and, you know, their their stories of the self. Their constructions of imaginary selves. But lawyers, you can't get inside their head because if you know what Perry Mason is thinking, (laughs) it's going to blow the whole ending. So there's this way in which lawyers as protagonists are often more gnomic than typical literary protagonists. And and their cynicism and their smart-ass quips often serve the purpose of giving you enough glimpse into what they're really thinking, but in a kind of oblique way that you can connect with them uh,
0: without really getting into their soul. You know, uh, the law... And has has played, uh, you know, in science fiction. It's often used. You think about Nineteen Eighty Four. Nineteen Eighty Four is in a sense a legal thriller. Uh, so talk about how uh, the law and lawyers have been played and portrayed in science fiction.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, Rick. I mean, science fiction is full of law, from you know, Asimov's three laws of robotics. Uh, uh, to the you know the the codes that define the world of Gilead and The Handmaid's Tale and in the new book The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, but very few lawyers, and it's a kind of a, a, a funny paradox. I mean, they're around, but they're usually in sort of dressed-up courtroom dramas that are sort of anachronistic. The best example is there's like a Star Trek episode called Court Martial from the original series where there's like Captain Kirk gets court-martialed for some like safety violation and And he's on a star base, and suddenly you meet Samuel T. Cogley, Esq., who's like the 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 Star Trek version of like F. Lee Bailey or something and in the first scene in which you meet this character, he's like he's so anachronistic that he's sitting in a room on the star base next to the giant you know omniscient computer, surrounded literally by a pile of twentieth century law books, federal judicial reporters and um there are lawyers there's like the sayer of the law in The Island of Dr. Moreau, is <laughs> the, only, the, only, uh, the only one of the animal-human hybrids in that Wells novel whose species, cross-species, is not defined. He's described as looking sort of like a sky terrier with some of the characteristics of a goat, but he's, he's a lawyer, and he's promulgating uh, the law. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think the reason that... Um, these lawyers in science fiction stories, when they do appear, seem so anachronistic is because to um imagine the lawyer of the future, you have to imagine what justice would look like in the future and i don't know that science fiction is really grappled with that that well. We can imagine injustice pretty well right mm-hmm. um but uh, uh and that's why I think we're seeing more and more like um Explorations of that using speculative fiction. There are a lot of people talking about, like, using science fiction to give us the truth and reconciliation commissions to, to deal with the injustices of the right now that the real world fails to deliver. Um, I was reading an excerpt from the new Margaret Atwood novel, *The Testaments*, and it mm. kind of has that narrative form of like testimony in front of a truth and reconciliation commission. It's what I'm working on, and my new book, which is a follow-on to this one. And uh, uh, I think that's an interesting potential uh, of science fiction in a way of trying to see you know, uh, if there's maybe more of a role for uh, law and the idea of justice in speculative fiction.
0: Right. Well, I mean, morals change so radically and so fast. I mean, in the past 20 years, uh, the morals of of the Western world, at least, have changed really pretty radically and pretty fast. And what was just 20 years ago might seem completely, you know, uh, coconuts now.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly norms have a way of changing really fast on those things that certainly I was raised to accept as sort of fundamental norms of behavior uh, Seem to have the ability to fall off the truck pretty quickly when we hit, you know, a little like s- speed bump in the zeitgeist. Um, you know, I just like think about these lawyers who wrote the memos that paved the way to the use of torture uh, after 9/11, uh, just to serve power, right? To kind of capitulate to their powerful clients. Um, on the other hand, you know, like as I was working on this book, Rick, I read that uh, Norman Mailer book, Miami and the Seizure Chicago, which is just like a first-person repertorial account of going to the political conventions in 1968, and I don't know, you read about 1968, which was 50 years ago when I was working on this book, or finishing this book, and it's like, that was pretty dystopian, you know, of like people going off to die in some far-away forever war, and... uh you know, uh, cops coming out to smash the heads literally of any political protesters. There's just a scene in that book where these like convention delegates are sitting in the bar of the Conrad Hilton in Chicago. And these cops like literally throw a protester through the plate glass window at these people sitting there drinking. And so I think, you know, science fiction in our focus on the future, we tend to be a little ahistorical often. Mm-hmm. And then, if you kind of dig back in and drop in the material of the past, you can find there's, you know, there is a lot more unevenly distributed dystopia out there if you just pay a little more attention.
0: The new novel by Christopher Brown is Rule of a Capture. Thank you for joining me, Chris.
1: Thanks for having me, Rick.